0: Hey there, this is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. Welcome back to another season of It Happened in Hollywood. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're an old fan, welcome too. What we do here is delve into the stacks and relive the making of some of the greatest films and TV shows. And this week, we have the film that won Nick Cage his Academy Award. All that and more coming up on It Happened in Hollywood. If you are a longtime fan of the show, you remember one of our earliest episodes was a film called Showgirls. The screenwriter Joe Esther has uh, shared his recollections with us. That came out in September of 1995 and was roundly ridiculed and for good reason but also did have a lot of camp value and has stood this test of time and um but a month after that film another film set in Las Vegas came out that one was actually a good movie it was called Leaving Las Vegas and it was a very dark journey into one man's uh, deep depression and, and basically just having lost his way. The man was played by Nicolas Cage, and uh, he's a screenwriter living in L.A. who basically gets fired because he's an alcoholic, and he moves to Vegas determined to drink himself to death.
1: I don't remember if I started
0: drinking because my wife left me, or I, my wife left me because I started drinking. But fuck it anyway. He has a bit of a fly in the ointment because he runs into a girl that he falls in love with. She's played by Elizabeth Shue, who until then was best known as a sweet-faced all-American girl from things like Adventures in Babysitting and Cocktail. But here she plays a streetwalker or a prostitute and definitely changed the perception of her in Hollywood. And she also was nominated for an Oscar for this one. Anyway, the film was conceived, written, directed by Mike Figgis, a British filmmaker who came out of theatre in England, in London, and um, had some big success with a film called Internal Affairs. Then he kind of stumbled with his films after that, and this was an attempt to get back to basics. Well, for our season premiere after an over-two-year absence, we're thrilled to announce that Mike Figgis is with us to walk us through the making of this incredible film, shot almost guerrilla-style with handheld 16mm camera on the streets of Vegas, and went on to be nominated for four Academy Awards, adapted screenplay, director... Actress in a Leading Role, and Actor in a Leading Role, which was won by Nicolas Cage. So without further ado, let's get into it. I'd like to welcome my guest this episode, director and writer and composer, Mike Figgis.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Mike, like all the films that we cover on, It Happened in Hollywood, I rewatched them. And um, I remembered when I had originally seen Leaving Las Vegas, what a huge impact it had on me. Uh, and I'm happy to say that the impact was no less than uh, the original time I'd seen it when I rewatched it. So thank you. You've created something that has really stood the, the test of time.
1: Oh, that's, that's always good to hear. You know, uh, I haven't seen it for quite a while. So uh, um, I was thinking actually the other day, I, I suddenly would like to see it again, actually. Yeah. I'll find a moment.
0: You know, this podcast kind of tells the story of how a project like that comes together with a little bit of biographical uh, information about you as well. So briefly, you know, tell me uh, how you got to basically become a director. You came out of a a music world, right?
1: Music and then theatre, performance art, and uh, with a British group. And then I had my own theatre company and I started to use film as part of the kind of mixed media approach that I was experimenting with at that time. I did three very quite big productions where I was using live music combined with pre-recorded music. I was using the same actors on film um, as on stage. And so I was playing with the relationship between the, like a screen presence, almost like as a dream element or whatever. And then, so the narrative would be existing on on film. uh, And then that actor would exit the frame on film, and the same actor would then appear on stage and continue, and sometimes then interact with themselves via the screen. So I became very interested in the kind of theatrical relationship of film. Uh, and then that kind of led to a sort of just an interest in cameras. And, uh, and obviously, I was a huge film fan anyway. And was very, you know, because I was doing very experimental work. I was also influenced by obviously the Nouvelle Vague, Goddard, and, the, and those people. Um, and I wanted to then ha- try to make something that just was a pure film. So, uh, and, that, and that coincided with the launch of a new TV channel in the UK, which was Channel 4. And they were commissioning a lot of new directors. And so, Neil Jordan and uh, Stephen Frears and, and various people. I mean they kind of had some break already but uh they were very much part of that channel for wave and i was smart enough to realize that because it was very difficult to get in the film business at that point in the uk the union unions were super tight and it was a catch-22 system you couldn't join the union unless you'd made a film but you couldn't make a film unless you were in the union, so it's like I thought that was that was pretty tight. But I got a dispensation to make this one-hour TV movie for Channel Four. Uh, great cast with uh, you know Stephen Ray and various people, and uh, yeah, and then Roger Deakins, fresh out of film school, shot that on sixteen millimeter, and um, that was my wow. first exposure to film. Yeah proper film, you know, and then I bought a 16 millimeter camera myself and started shooting stuff, more experimental stuff, meanwhile trying to get funding together for my first feature, which was Stormy Monday, and uh, so it was a kind of, you know, parallel universe that I was teaching, Uh, I was still doing some performance, and I was still playing music, but very much becoming more intrigued by what was possible with film because of the whole control thing of being able to edit for example that was a whole yeah something you could never do with a theater production unfortunately but uh yeah i became intrigued
0: and then uh story monday was a success and led to internal affairs with richard gear which is a major hollywood hit and revived his career and i guess made you a player on in the hollywood stage how did that feel (laughs)
1: <laughs> it was bizarre because, uh, I mean, I was I was not a baby. I mean, I was already in my late 30s, you know, by the time I made, I think I turned 40 when I made Internal Affairs. You know, and I'd heard all the stories, of course, because Hollywood as a kind of source of fantasy stories is always very entertaining. So you hear these train wreck stories and how you're going to get eaten up by the Hollywood system and all the rest of it. So I went, I made it, I was so naive, kind of combination of naive and maybe cocky, I don't know confident. So I kind of went, wow, great. I, I kind of know this landscape so well uh, because I, I saw Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye and you know, and all those <laughs> great movies, right? I um, found John Alonso, who was uh, kind of a gift from heaven in a way. He was a fantastic handheld rogue cinematographer, obviously done Chinatown. So I kind of jumped in with a kind of an elite uh, group of people, uh, and Richard Gere, who's a wonderful actor, as is Andy Garcia, as is Laurie Metcalf. And most importantly, a fantastic script from Henry Bean. And so everything worked pretty well. It was a kind of a hit. And then suddenly I found myself in a restaurant. Sean Penn would come over and say hello, and I think he's come to the wrong table. He must think I'm somebody else. You know? <laughs> and then I kind of thought, you know, this kind of bullshit. I mean, Hollywood seems like, seems like, a very kind of friendly place, you know. <laughs> then I made Lieberström, and then I made, you know, uh, a couple of other movies, and then I kind of started to learn the truth about, about the good and the bad of, of the system, of a big studio system, you know. And my naivety was corrected.
0: You're as good as your, as your last picture, is basically what it boils down to. You have a lot of friends yeah. when you have a hit, and if you don't, suddenly things get cold.
1: But interestingly, yeah, you are as good as your last thing. But you have leeway from the studio system. If you've done something that they liked, they will still give you the benefit of the doubt as long as you keep in the system and you keep working. You know, like, let's say you're in post-production. Before the bad reviews come out, you make sure you set up your next movie.
0: (laughs) Clever. So I understand Leaving Las Vegas sort of came, came out of that sort of period of disillusionment. Uh, in your career, could you could you explain that a bit?
1: I did Lieberström, which completely tanked, despite being, I think, an interesting film. Um, and then I did a film called Mister Jones, with again with Richard Gere, and and it was a tri-star. and that that really was a disaster because I fell out with uh, Ray Stark. Um, people kept saying to me, you know, just shut up, don't argue with him. But I kind of it's in my nature to kind of fight. your corner. And that that wasn't a healthy thing to do with Ray Stark. And that film just kind of dragged on and was a kind of unpleasant series of events. It It was really the opposite of internal affairs. And by the time that did drag out, and then I made a very nice film, the Browning version, but the studio didn't really back it and it didn't really get the exposure that I think Albert Finney deserved for that film. And I was pretty disillusioned, and I was dreaming about getting out. I was also dreaming about 16 millimetre, which I retained this great affection for after my first film with Deakins. And um, what happened was I kind of was hanging out with a bunch of people, uh, like uh, sort of Br- some Brits, but some kind of Anglophiles. And um, Mr. Chow was a friend, and there was a, like a circle of friends that were very nice and um, a guy called Stuart Reagan, uh, uh, who ran a gallery, a very experimental art gallery. And he, uh, was introduced to me by Paige Simpson. So, um, you know, I had my group of friends who were feeding me things. And I think Paige and Stuart, Stuart said, could you give Mike this book? I think he'd bought it in a secondhand bookshop in Santa Monica. It was leaving Las Vegas. And, uh, He's a lovely guy. He passed away, cancer, um, afterwards, but he's a great guy. And I love the fact that he had this kind of modern art sensibility and, you know, he was not part of the system. And so I, I accepted the book gladly and I put it in my leather bag and I then carried it around for a month, two months. And I'd get, you know, these polite little calls saying, Have you had a chance to read the book? I mean, every director has the same thing as so a friend gives you a book. Either it's already been optioned, or you know, some reason they responded to it and they think it'll be a great movie. And so you you never kind of read those books with great enthusiasm. It's more like a kind of it's a favor for a friend. So finally, I felt guilty enough to kind of go, "Sorry, Stuart, I'll read it this weekend." You know, which coincided with a, I'm sure, fairly dark moment in my uh, Hollywood relationship. And I started reading it, and I went, "Wow, it's great! It's so dark." it so could never be a studio picture. This could only be shot on 16 millimeter. I already had these thoughts, you know, and this could only be shot as a super low-budget experimental film, and this could be my passport out of here, you know, as in I, I don't want to stop making films. I just don't want to be in this constant kind of feuding with a studio. I mean, I never set out to quarrel with them. It's just that some of the committee decisions didn't seem to me particularly healthy.
0: Just to explain for our, uh, our listeners, Ray Stark, if you could just explain who he is and who is, what his power was at the time.
1: Well, you know, Ray was old school. Uh, mm-hmm. He'd worked with Barbara Streisand, very powerful, and very good, and he'd done some great stuff. Uh, I met him when he was quite old, and he was already, I would say, quite twisted by then. You know, he was, he was quite a vindictive guy and with a kind of very cruel mean streak in him. I remember the first meeting I had with him, we went for lunch and he, he wanted to see what I was like. And I can't really repeat it on, on this podcast, but he said something, it was so vulgar, kind of <laughs> sexist and misogynistic. And I went, wow, okay. Okay, well, that's him, you know, but I don't, I, I that, naively I thought, I, he's just... Off to one side, I didn't realize actually. Even though he was old and out of his era, he still had a tremendous amount of power at uh, Tristar, uh, which was, at, you know, at that point being the boss was Mike Metivoy. He was a good guy, you know. Mm-hmm. But Ray really kind of had, you know, had him under his thumb. I would say certainly mm-hmm. as far as me, as I was concerned, um, and like I'd said earlier. I did make the mistake of, I actually told him to fuck off on the phone, (laughs) uh, which was not wise, but he was ringing up every day going, no, no more improvising. You know, Lena Olin needs to wear a much shorter skirt. And why isn't her (laughs) hair down? I went, she's playing the part of a therapist, you know, and he went, Barbara Streisand was sexy and Prince of Tides, you know, why can't Lena? And he put pressure on Lena's uh, agent, who then kind of put pressure on Lena Olin saying, look, you know, uh, the studio think you're not, you don't look good in this and Mike's making you look too dull and whatever. And so she got very insecure, you know. So the whole thing was unpleasant. And Ray, actually, we continued to have af- afterwards a kind of, I thought, humorous, combative relationship because every time I saw him, I because I didn't care. It's not like I wanted to marry him or his money or anything. So by the time he'd screwed me over royally, um... And basically got to my editor and bribed her to do the cut, his cut, not my cut, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, reading Leaving Las Vegas, great novel, Uh uh, was like manna from heaven because it was about something. And also Mr. Mr. Jones was supposed to be about something. You know, Richard Gere did a great performance in the first cut as a bipolar manic depressive, and he was fantastic. By the time they butchered it and John Emile came in and reshot the ending and re-edited the film, uh, it turned into something that was a bit bit silly, really. And so Leaving Las Vegas presented a character that was not dissimilar, but I thought there's no way I'd learn my lesson. This will never function within a studio system because it's too dark and he, he kills himself. So um, it's almost like, interference proof you know because uh (laughs) it is what it is you know
0: and just uh to talk a bit about the book uh it's written by a guy named john o'brien it's it's um it's a memoir right it's not fiction
1: it is fiction
0: oh it is fiction yeah but but maybe semi it's
1: so close because i got to know his um his ex-wife his mom and dad his sister and they all sort of said yeah no this was totally autobiographical but and so was John a,
0: was a like an aspiring um screenwriter from the Midwest who came out to LA
1: not a screenwriter he was a novelist you know a pure novelist and uh, okay. he wrote i think 3 novels all very good uh, all very dark you know and uh had a very small kind of like fan base who people who actually really had spotted him as as an aspiring you know writer um yeah
0: I think uh, I was reading a bit about him and he did like sell one script for the animated show Rugrats, but had such That's a horrible yeah. experience on it that he never yeah. wanted to.
1: But I think that was more that thing of how do I make money whilst, right. I'm, while, whilst I'm following my kind of heart to be a novelist, you know. Yeah.
0: And in the end, he, he did end up committing suicide like the, the the protagonist of his book. But when you got your hands on the book, he was still alive, right?
1: Yeah, I was going to meet him. I was all set up and sent messages and he'd approved me uh, through Stuart. Stuart knew him. And um, I said, OK, we, you know, the next step would be to meet him, to obviously discuss the story. And then suddenly Stuart rang me up and said, no, he's, he actually killed himself, shot himself. Wow. <clears throat>
0: and does that, how does that affect you when you're creating this sort of character inspired by him?
1: It was affected me a great deal. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he meant it. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, oh, see, this is real. But I thought it was such a powerful piece of work that I felt committed to carrying on with it.
0: So, okay, so you have this incredible but very unfilmable anti-Hollywood novel. Mm -hmm. And um, who do you go to to say, give me the money to turn this into a... A motion picture. <laughs> who, who goes Nobody. along with the ride?
1: Um, no one. No one. Uh, it was quite interesting. Uh, I said, let's not even go there. Let's just get... Let Let me see if I can turn this into a script, first and foremost. Um, I was obviously still dealing with um, the, the studio and on, on a couple of films and a lot of other stuff. So I... I just said about deconstructing the novel, and um, it's a very interesting process, because the novel is quite dense, and most of it is internal dialogue. You know, the character, Ben, talking to himself, or thinking to himself, the character, Sarah, thinking to herself. And then there are, there's dialogue between them when they meet, but it's pretty much an internal novel for both of them. So I thought, okay, well, that's obviously gonna be tricky. Um, So what I did was I Xeroxed the entire book, um, and then I had a pile of paper, and I went through with a pair of scissors and some Scotch tape, and I basically cut it up, and I made three piles. Uh, One was, this: no way this could work in a movie. The second (laughs) one was interesting, but I don't know where it fits, because it's not narrative, it's not story as such. I wanted to, first of all, create a story which had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so the third pile was was just that, and it was the shortest pile by a long way. <laughs> so then, what I did was I identified all the gaps in the narrative because there were many. You know, so it's almost like putting something together and going, okay, well, how did how did he get to there? And I started writing connective scenes that uh, glued this very small bunch of scenes together. And in that process, I started delving into the second pile which is quite interesting and thinking oh that actually would work quite well there and um with complete disregard for his original timeline you know I didn't damage his timeline in the in the sense of his trajectory but in terms of like that's a really good scene I think that would work better there and so on and that continued by the way right through to the the edit as well um and then uh and then I basically put it away in my desk. And, uh, and then probably four or five weeks later, I got it out and I read it again. And then identified, okay, it's not bad, but there's a big gap here. And so I think I did three passes in that way, each time delving into the second pile and then beginning to find, okay, there's stuff still in the first pile, the totally would never work in a movie pile, that actually is quite good. So um, gradually the script took shape. The, the finished script that we started showing people, I think was, and I was cheating, like using big letters and everything. It was like 70 something pages, you know. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's true of pretty much all my scripts, you know, and people weigh them in their hands and go, is this a feature film? Or is it a short story? And I go, yeah, but I don't write two pages for psychological bullshit to say what the character is feeling. I mean, this. get the actors to do that and i mean i've never bought that idea that one page equals one minute of uh, screen time interesting yeah
0: so you had a script um (laughs) (laughs) uh and then were you writing with any did you have any dream actors in mind as you were writing the script or
1: well as soon as it was in some kind of shape i had become very good friends with a a wonderful i'd say the last of the old time um agents ed lamato It was an incredible character, had the best Oscar parties, always the, I think the Friday or the Saturday before the Oscars, always the best. He was a, he was an incredible agent and that he'd, I knew him because he'd represented Richard Gere, uh, but I think he'd represented Meryl Streep. He represented everybody. He was the top agent, you know, in his day. And for that period, he was representing Nick also. So Nick goes through a lot of agents and managers and so on but for that time he had ed and ed was really pushing him you know and uh so i sent it to ed and he sent it to nick and nick replied pretty quickly he read it straight away and he sent me um sent me a fax sadly i don't know if you ever had this but faxes fade i keep my letters Mm -hmm. i I tried to find the fax the other day it was kind of a blank page right oh wow (laughs) You Know, I thought I maybe there's something you can do to bring the writing back, but he basically said, Uh, I beg you, do not give this to anybody else. And, um, I had had a meeting with uh, Andy Garcia, a friendship meeting, and I he said, What are you up to? And I said, I've got this great, you know, blah blah blah, this amazing character. And Andy went, Oh don't ask me to play that character, you know? And I'd also mentioned it to Richard Gere, but I hadn't offered it to him. And both of them had kind of like, went, thanks, but no thanks, you know, even though I wasn't saying, please do it. So
0: this- What, what scared them about, about the material?
1: The material.
0: Just too dark, too, too- Yeah. Self-destructive.
1: I mean, I can't think of the last sort of major sort of like act as a, narrative film that starts with a guy saying, I'm going to kill myself and ends with a guy killing himself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, all power to Ed Lamato, the great, great, great agent who then got his client, you know, an Oscar, that he didn't balk at the idea, you know, but he was old school. And, you know, I think the kind of nervousness brought on by pressure from the studio to always make sure the guys are shining person and and the ending's good so yeah no so uh I had I admired Nick and I'd met him once before and for a screen test for another film for Lieberstrom in fact and um I thought he he was pretty good and his enthusiasm was fantastic so I said okay and I stayed true to my word I never offered it to anybody else Lisa Shue I'd met for a casting for a film called The Hot Spot that Dennis Hopper ended up directing. But I'd remembered Lisa Shue. And I mean, I remember when I would say to people, I've got I've got the stream cast, I've got Nick Cage, and went, Nick Cage is the guy who eats cockroaches and does weird (laughs) stuff. And Lisa Shu, you mean Lisa Shue from Adventures in Babysitting and Cocktail? I went, Yeah, I think she's fantastic, you know, and they go, Really? Nobody could understand what why I was doing that. Uh, but I was pretty sure they were they were fantastic they would they would be great, And so I had my cast in place, so my package was this totally depressing script. two actors that people weren 't sure of. Um, and then something momentous happened um, as part of the Hollywood game was I was represented at ICM by Jeff Berg. Jeff Berg had seduced me away from the Morris office from a perfectly good, um, very lovely agent um, called Mike Simpson, who I feel guilty to this day that I left him because he he actually came to England and found me and signed me up. But you know, you're made to feel so insecure when you're in Hollywood, when something doesn't work. And Jeff Berg basically rang me up and said, you need a stronger agent, I can get you better work. And I fell for it. And he said, I will be your personal agent. And then we did Mr. Jones, and they discovered he was Ray Stark's agent. I also discovered (laughs) that that my attorney was Ray Stark's attorney, you know. (laughs) And none of them had read my contract. Quite funny that. And so as part of my disillusion with Hollywood, I thought, bloody hell, you know. Um, And then I was being offered these other agents, you know, to kind of rep me on a day-to-day basis. Um, So I had lunch with one of them. And uh, his name was Robert Newman, and he was new to ICM at the time. And Robert, I liked him, but I, you know, we were about, I was about to go to Cannes because the Browning version was in competition there. And um, and so I think two weeks before Cannes, I met Robert, and I thought, I'm going to give him as much rope as he wants. And he was amazing. So the week before Cannes, he and I did the rounds. Miramax, Fox Searchlight, every all the obvious venues at that point that you would go to with a low budget, you know, we would. He was saying, you know, about four million dollars, something like that, and uh, everybody turned it down. Literally, everybody turned it down, and said, "Okay, well, look, I'm going to go to Cannes anyway, so let's continue there." We got to Cannes. I did a deal with uh, Paramount publicity department. They'd arranged three days of um, interviews, TV things, the whole thing there. I said, look, if I I can do them in two days, can I have a day off? And they said, sure. So on the day off, Robert and I then did the rounds again, and we literally went everywhere. I mean, we plumbed the depths of, you know, the other side of Cam. And where you're almost in kind of porno film territory sometimes, (laughs) you know.
0: Yeah, because most people associate Cannes with the glitz and the red carpet, but it's also a film market, and you have all levels of filmmakers Absolutely. applying their goods.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. At, towards the end of that day, we end up on a yacht somewhere with a, a French film company called Lumiere, and uh, uh, Lila Cazez, this rather very eccentric producer, and her husband, um, they'd read the script, and they'd responded to it, and they liked it um and sort of made the sort of noise i mean but we know those noises everybody you know like the proof is you know going to be a three four weeks later you know was are you actually serious about making this and they said they were and so we left can with this kind of half assurance and then that turned out that they were serious with a lot of caveats you know like nothing's nothing's ever that simple and uh Leela, God bless her, was also kind of crazy and very eccentric, <laughs> uh, and had a very, very strong will and, uh, opinion about everything. So when I started to make changes in the script, she went, no, 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 no. We, I already signed off on, you know, the original script. And I, I you know, I'm a working writer director and I know that the process continues till you start shooting. So, uh, but that got us finally the, the one company that responded was Lumiere. It's not like we were in competition with anybody else. And they had an office um, just off La Cienega, uh, somewhere near the Beverly, Beverly Center, you know, had um, got back to LA and, you know, started having more um, intense meetings. And then finally, it seemed like we were in pre-production. So that's how, how it got going.
0: You were based in Los Angeles at this time sure. in your career, hmm. uh, but you're based in, in the UK now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and so they gave you what's practically a micro budget. I mean, what was it? Three, four million dollars.
1: Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, I never saw. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I never saw, saw the, the re- money. <laughs> I never saw the money. I mean, I mean, Nicholas and I never got paid. You know, for the we never no. got. Our, yeah, because they said the film never went into profit. You know, um, whatever, you know, I mean, you know, in a f- more philosophical note, of course, my career then took off again. And, you know, I, the next film I did, I got, I, I got really well paid. So And he uh, won an Oscar. And he did well. And I, and he went up within a year, he was earning 20 million a film. So that, that was quite good. I think we were only owed a hundred thousand dollars each, you know, so, um, yeah. So you
0: were practically working free anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it was, a la- it was a labor of love, and I would have done it for nothing, actually. And Nick, by the way, God bless him, it's eccentric dude though he is, he kind of, he backrolled the pre-production in the sense that he took a suite at the Chateau Marmont for us to rehearse. He rehearsed by getting drunk every night so he could get in the mode. No, he was heart and soul. He put himself into this into this character and and the whole production and was generous to everybody, I have to say.
0: And uh, you mentioned earlier that Roger Deakins, who did your first film on sixteen millimeter, uh, he of Mm -hmm. course is you know one of the greatest cinematographers of all time, one of the most Oscar nominated, if not the most Oscar nominated. And that you you'd made a decision to to go back to sixteen. So is that is that an economic one? Is that an aesthetic one? Uh, Like what was the thinking there?
1: Well, I mean, I'm in pretty much the same situation right now, which is uh, having gone through the digital revolution, which I was pretty much part of the spearhead of that movement, you know, with Timecode and those those movies. I find that we've gone back to the same system where obviously everybody loves the Alexa and the, the RED and so on. But these are cameras that are getting bigger again. The lenses are huge, and it requires usually three rather stout man to carry all the stuff and, and be intensely around monitoring everything. It's become tech heaven again. And I felt, having worked on a number of pictures in the studio system on 35, that the cumbersomeness of the equipment and the number of trucks actually resulted in lost time with the actors. And I found myself always waiting for the lights, always waiting for the camera in some way. Not to blame the cinematographers, but it just, the stuff was too big. And I kept remembering 16 millimeter, and particularly the Arton camera, was such a beautiful thing. And I loved the quality. I loved the image quality of Super 16 and 16mm. 16 so I had bought a 16mm Arton to shoot a couple of experimental films before I went to Hollywood. And I still owned that camera. And it was the camera that Peter Greenaway had used on the Draftsman's contract. You know, so that looked pretty good. I was convinced that 16 was the way to go because with such a small budget, I needed time with the actors. So I needed a brilliant line producer who was tough, needed a brilliant sound recordist, and um, Declan Quinn, who was wonderful, uh, agreed, had shot on 16 and was happy with it and was happy with, and this was a key thing, that I was also going to shoot. 'Cause in the process, usually on the Browning version, I'd started to shoot second camera. And as soon as that happened, I went, Oh my God, this is what I need to be doing. I need to have this connection with the actors. I need to be shooting. So and I'd always shot stuff and I was a photographer and I knew all about cameras, so it wasn't a challenge to me. And so I had my own sixteen millimeter camera. I said, look, I'll bring mine and and we'll shoot everything on two cameras and that'll save time. And I laid down some dogma type rules. Like, we won't have a big truck. I don't want to carry any track with me. We either go handheld, we'll use available light, or just keynos, or just the most simple lighting. You know, it's got to be beautiful, which leaving Las Vegas is. Everybody looks good. But we didn't use a huge lighting rig. Or, uh, the only time we ever lost time was when, uh, when Declan Quinn decided to light the scene. And it was a daylight scene. And we basically lost the scene, you know, because it took so long to light.
0: So it sounds like you have a very tight crew. Like, is it just a handful of you? You, Declan, the sound person? Uh,
1: He's got, like, probably two AC camera assists. Um, Declan, I mean, um, Pavel, who was my genius sound recordist, who I worked with on, I think, you know, four or five films and documentaries. He's the best sound recordist I've ever met in my life. Sadly, he's retired, gone back to Poland, but he had a boom, Um, that's all. And then the interesting thing, you know, was because it was super 16, not 35, the crew were super relaxed. People were helping each other. People were picking up cables. They were like, and the people were very happy because we were working. I was... Me and the line producer uh, were kind of almost fascistic in terms of like, you know, it's like, I would say uh, to the first AD, you know, give me like a 30-minute warning. Locations were like really tight. And I would kind of, I would shout out, we've got 30 minutes to get this shot, non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. And we'd stick to that. We'd stick to that. And, uh, and, we, and we, so we kept to the schedule. We didn't lose anything, you know. And then became very inventive. Like there's a scene in, lovely scene in the film, which is on a lot of the posters where they're underwater and Nicholas is drinking underwater, you know, and she dives in to join him. We didn't have the money to do an underwater shot. And we were in Vegas and the Las Vegas Film Commission hated us because it was a film about a terminal alcoholic who kills himself. They thought that was bad publicity for for Vegas because that just doesn't happen there, right? Which is ironic, because we stayed in the cheapest, cheapest hotel in Vegas, and there were bloody footprints on the wall next to the bed. And I thought, Jesus, you know, (laughs) just like six feet off the ground, there was a bloody footprint on the wall, you know. Um, No help from the film commission. And then stuff (laughs) like we try and grab shots on the street and immediately... Guy's security would come out from a a casino and say, you have no permission to shoot there. And so I got into a kind of very funny conversation, one of them. I said, what do you mean? I said, do you own the pavement? And he went, yeah, you can't shoot there. I went, oh, that's really interesting. I always thought, because in Britain the pavement is like public domain. He said, not here. And I said, so I can't shoot here. He said, that's right. I said, do you own the road? And he went, no. I said, so if I'm in my car with the camera p- pointing out of the window, are you going to stop me? He said, no, that's okay. So I said, okay, negotiated that. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, but it was kind of, it was, a, you know, tedious trying to kind of like get stuff and shoot. And so we'd made a deal that we would shoot the key stuff in Vegas where we needed all the free neons and everything. And then we would camp and get out. then we go to Laughlin you know, which was much more user-friendly and they were happy to see us, right? Which was the kind of geriatric version of Vegas, right? <laughs> just average age seemed to be about 90 and people just dying on the slots and things, you know. So uh, so we were literally leaving Vegas. We were leaving Las Vegas and Annie Stewart, my producer, suddenly went, ah, look at that. And I said, oh, Wow. And it was like a 50s motel on the outskirts of Vegas. And it had a swimming pool that was built up. So not, not sunk, but built up. And on the road, in the side of the road, was a big window and you could see into the swimming pool. I went, wow, okay. We went in, I said, can we shoot in your swimming pool for like an hour? And they said, sure. Um, we immediately like blacked out, put some like black wrap around the, you know, to shut the sun out. Set up the camera, got Nick and Lisa into their swimming costumes, like, and then threw them into the pool and said, "Okay, just do that scene." Uh, we shot it in like thirty minutes. Got back in the car and drove to Laughlin, and it's a beautiful scene. You know, can you imagine trying to shoot that on thirty-five with a full crew, and then having to negotiate? And they would see uh, all the people outside and go, "This is going to cost you a fortune." It cost us a hundred bucks. You know. So, Amazing, uh, yeah.
0: It's I mean it's almost guerrilla filmmaking. It sounds sure. like, yeah. And while you are making it, are you thinking this is going to be a multi-Oscar nominated? <laughs> like, what do you think is going to happen to this thing?
1: No, not at all. I, d- I didn't care. Uh, I just was so happy, and the crew were happy, and Nick was happy. Everybody was happy uh, because the work was so good um, and so intense and so emotional. That I really like. Oh. I think the first time on an American film when I had that kind of like that feeling of everybody just like just wanting to go to work and working so hard, like no time off and no one complaining, no like Oh, I, I demand that this, you know, I'm so tired. None of that. Funnily enough, the same crew I used on the next film, which was One Night Stand, 35 millimeter union studio, night and day. They all turned into kind of union reps and, uh, you know, <laughs>
0: There's a few sequences that obviously, you know, very difficult material in this film. Um, I wanted to ask about the, the gang rape, which uh, is a tremendously effective scene. Uh, obviously, you know, horrifying. But uh, the the three is three college age guys or two college age guys that sort of hire uh, Elizabeth Shue's character uh, to come and. Um, you know, do her thing, and um, it gets uh, very dark and very violent very quickly. So, uh, wondering where you know where you found these these uh, guys, and 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 you know how how do you shoot? You know, in this era, you have all kinds of you know intimacy coordinators and things. But this sounds like it was it was quick and mm-hmm. uh, must have been a pretty uh, devastating scene for her to play. If you could talk a bit about that scene,
1: uh, yeah. I mean, the key statement here is that Elizabeth Shue is a phenomenal, phenomenal human being and actor. So she was totally fine about the scene because it's part of the character. Um, She's married to Davis Guggenheim and I I actually had breakfast with Davis before we shot and went through, you know, uh, what was going to happen with his fiance and Discussed the whole thing with him, but she was totally immersed in the part. So for her, it was like, funny enough, it was much more. I think more difficult for me, because uh, uh, I was by then completely in love with Elizabeth as a human being. I remember threatening the boys. I mean, the boys, sweet guys. I mean, they were just they're just actors, right? Um, so I said, and then this, this was not method. They they were the sweetest guys. I said, but you need to be realistic. But I'll tell you now. Um, when I say cut, and if any of you ever step off the line, I will personally kill you. You know, you know. So that, there was so much respect on this on the set. Plus, it's quite interesting compared to a lot of other films the way it was shot. So it was shot on a video camera for the most part because it was their point of view, which makes it much more brutal. And uh, I think it's fair to say I resisted as much of the graphic possibilities as I as as i could um and in fact probably the most devastating shot is when she's in the shower and you see that she's bleeding but you don't you just see the blood you know it's an ex- i think a good example of uh, of good filmmaking uh it was a very tough scene and i think collectively we did we did it the best way possible it was an integral part of the story um and and totally valid to be in the film. I mean, I got a lot of flack back in England from feminists, um, some feminists, not not all of them. But uh, it was tricky. It was absolutely tricky. And it's one of those, you know, decisions you have to make. And so my decision was to make it very, very powerful, but to do it in the least uh, graphic or, let's say, I think I said, I think at one Q&A, I did ask all the men. I said, did, did, were you sexually aroused by the scene? And I think all the answers were, um, no, I was kind of horrified and ashamed. And, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's totally shocking and appalling because uh, what it does effectively is show how dangerous her job is. Mm -hmm. Because they they seem pretty benign. They seem like little puppy college kids. And um, it turns very quickly. And you realize that, uh, you know, that this kind of misogynist, violent rage kind of simmers beneath all kinds of men.
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting the lead up to it too. When you there's a moment when you realise that she's crossed a line. She's she's not being careful. Uh, she could have handled the situation in a different way, and because she's so upset uh, in her own the whole personal thing, she's she becomes very vulnerable. And I think I, in a way that was also dramatically one of the key reasons for that scene was that you know having been a very assertive, in-control kind of character, you know, uh, she falls in love with this guy and it and it makes her very vulnerable, you know. And then as a result of that vulnerability, this awful thing happens.
0: A few other of the supporting performances that were really tremendous, uh, Julian Sands, the great Julian Sands, uh, who I hadn't thought about in a long time, plays uh, her Polish pimp, mm-hmm. um, who's also violent with her and um, paranoid, although it turns out he's justifiably paranoid
1: yeah he's justifiably paranoid because i shoot him you uh, know in my cameo <laughs> yeah
0: oh and so you play oh my god this is coming together now okay you play yeah. he's he, he thinks he's being uh you know traced uh followed by a uh, mafia and then mm. and then he gets her to, to leave because he's worried about her and then the mafia come with a gun you never see what happens yeah. so you're you're the main guy with the gun
1: I am, yeah. And the other guy <laughs> is my art director, Valdemar Kolonovsky.
0: Well, you're very convincingly uh threatening in your yeah. Hitchcock cameo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, but you mentioned Laurie Metcalf, of course. Y-
0: yes, who was in, uh you mentioned, was in Internal Affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching, and it'll be another episode this season, uh Desperately Seeking Susan and forgot mm-hmm. she was in that. And whatever she's in, she always just steals it. <laughs> so here yes. she's... She's the neighbor um, who's uh, increasingly concerned about Elizabeth Shue's new relationship with Nicolas Cage's character. What can you tell me about uh, that?
1: You know, of course, I'd worked with her and got to know her as a friend in internal affairs and and realized that she was a genius. Um, I realized it's a bit like, you know, if she'd been a jazz musician, you know, you just bring her in for a session and kind of vaguely say what key it's in and then say, okay, press record, because she's that good. She's, Insanely good at at um, improvising, so I that that was it. I said, you know, do you want to come just for a day and have fun she went I would love to, you know. So she came, and uh, she had uh, the script um as it was, and then I, I as off you go. She's fantastic. Now, he I has been here for about half or an or hour. An auntie, been half an I hour, know that, uh, you know. And uh, Mickey
0: said that he had seen the two of you together. So uh, I was not about to open the door because, you know, I don't know who, I don't know where, I don't know what, I don't know uh, whatever these days. He's my friend. Well, I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. I I, I guess he
0: must have had a little too much to drink. Couldn't do that. Well, (laughs) you know, that's why I had him patch the key, though, because he's not going to do it.
1: I think she is maybe the greatest living American actress. Uh, uh, I really, I saw her in Long Day's Journey Into Night in London on the stage and I've never been ever been so blown away by a performance i went to see it twice it was like she was on some other planet incredible her voice yeah
0: i saw her in three tall women on broadway that was did you see the three tall women no oh my god also amazing and yeah she just won an emmy for her uh, work on hacks yeah Um, so it's it's uh, always wonderful to see her
1: yeah and then the other cameos which uh which were wonderful. So we have uh there are lots of sons and daughters of Hollywood. So we have Jane Mansfield's daughter, you know, Marishka Marishka. Yeah. We have uh, uh at the Houston dynasty, we have Danny Houston. Oh,
0: we right. have John
1: John Lennon's son, uh, Julian Lennon. Um and then uh and then my great great friend Bob Rafelson, again sadly passed away very recently who has a tiny cameo, but a wonderful one. He's in a restaurant, and he just has one little chat with Nicholas after he's had a spat with Elizabeth. So, yeah, so these people would kind of, on a daily basis, would turn up, Valerio Galina, um, and as as you mentioned, Julian. So that was also like a fun thing, because the shoot wasn't very long. It was like three weeks or something. So every day there'd be a kind of like a another friend would pop in and and do a cameo. It was nice. You
0: had Richard Lewis at the beginning.
1: Oh, Lewis was fantastic, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, Nick, you know, I think people think of him as one of the more intense, immersive actors, and you mentioned that he was getting drunk at the Chateau Marmont to prepare. On set, was he drinking to to get into this guy's headspace, or...?
1: He wanted to. This is a kind of, uh, a little spat that we had. He kind of won. He suddenly said, I think I want to do the whole film drunk uh, with an earpiece, and I have an assistant that was just going to feed me the lines. Because he'd heard that that's what Brando did, right? And uh, I said, no way, Nick, no way. It's a low-budget film. We don't have time for you to be drunk.
0: You can never, never
1: ask me to stop drinking. Do you understand? But he got it into his head that he'd he wanted to do the scene drunk. So without telling me the scene in the casino where he overturns the casino table and has a fit, Um, Annie came to me, my producer, just before, she said, "I, I think you ought to know, he just drank a bottle of vodka. He's off his face. And I went, what? And we had permission to shoot for one evening in this casino, not super friendly. And I went, okay, two cameras, definitely, you know. And he improv that scene and, you know, he smashed the table, he smashed a computer, he knocked over um, the waitress. <laughs> it's a wonderful scene. What?
0: What? No! No! Fuck you! Fuck! You ah! 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 Fuck! You can't judge me!
1: i was furious with him absolutely furious but you know uh nick's nick's nick you know so uh he 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 did his, his one scene like that and the rest he 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 behaved you know in that. but um, it's not that he didn't behave he just he's so intense you know
0: so the the scene where he turned over the the poker table or the blackjack table that that wasn't scripted that was he improvised that
1: well the scene was obviously scripted but the manner in which he did it you know uh was like a a hundred times more intense than than was written in the script you know okay so he did this whole thing about flashback to his kids or i you know like he did a whole thing he did a whole method thing
0: um so now you have it in the can, and then you said you you digitized the Well, that was very interesting. Footage. So
1: I was looking for an editor. I'd been working, I'd been shooting commercials in England. And I, I found this editor, John Smith. He'd never cut a feature before, but he's a really good editor. And, uh, you know, people who cut commercials, they get a bit bored with commercials. Um, and he was brilliant at doing, he was a really good cutter. And so... Uh, in passing, we were doing a commercial, and I said, have you ever thought about doing a feature? And he went, no, I'd love to. And I said, well, I've got, like, super low budget, and I explained what it was, and I said, do you want to cut it? And he went, that would be great. And so he agreed to cut it. My plan was to be super authentic, was to shoot it on Super 16 and to edit it on a flatbed, on a on a Steenbeck, old school, because I'd learned editing that way, and I loved it, you know. So I think for two days, that's what we did. And he was like, he said, Mike, trust me, the Avid's great. And I went, I don't know about this newfangled video stuff. And uh, he said, look, trust me. And I went, okay. And so there there was a hiatus while they then transferred all of the dailies onto uh, various drives. And of course, talking 25 years ago. So, I mean, an Avid was like a big pile of, metal stuff you know it's not like you needed a room for it you needed room but it was digital you know and he had been cutting on avid he was you know he was he was a brilliant avid cutter that was his and he would have cut he knew how to cut on 16 but he and as soon as we started cutting on the avid i went okay and there are things in the film that i never would have done if i'd cut it on a flatbed I only saw the possibility by by it being on Avid or on a digital format. Um, and of course... Like what? Well, number one, it's clean, you know. So, for example, they're about to do a Blu-ray of um, internal affairs. So I was doing an interview the other day and the guy was saying, you know, tell me about the original ending. Paramount can't find any of the footage. And I went, oh, what a surprise. I said... And then I said, I think I've got the original uh, first cut of the film on, um, on video somewhere. So I looked and I found it, got it transferred, and I was looking at it. And of course, cutting on film, everything just looked like shit, because every cut is a jump. There's no such thing as a dissolve. You get pencil markings all over it. it it's covered in dust. It's, uh, it's a one light print. It's horrible so uh you don't get any of that so you you know pretty much you're editing and it's it's already looking like a movie and then some of the slowing up and the speeding up which of course you could never do on 16 uh you'd have to just kind of guess it and then then get the lab to do an approximation you'd guess whatever it was you know 40 percent or 30 percent. you could do it straight away on the avid i mean there's some render time and all that but you started to see what the film, while you were cutting it, see what the film was like. And I mean, I've never looked back. I wouldn't dream of going back and cutting on film now. Um, so, uh, and it also meant that we weren't also slashing away at the negative because often that, you know, if you change your mind in an edit, you want to go back and do things. Suddenly you've cut the original negative and all of that. So, uh, yeah, it was a revelation. And he it's like putting him in water, John Smith. So he was you know, he was so fluid and free with the way he was editing. So yeah.
0: And there really is a fluidity to the to the, the whole film. It 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 just feels I don't even know I don't know if I have the words to describe it, but it's very fluid, very mm-hmm. musical, um, dreamy yeah. and um and almost like has a music video like elegance to it. Even though what yeah. you're looking at is, is so brutal, it, it really flows.
1: Mm. It's kind of interesting because I, somebody once said, how would you describe it? I It's like a science fiction version of a Scott Fitzgerald novel, you know, <laughs> set in the future. You know, it's like, you know, Beautiful Losers, the Jazz Age, the whole thing. Because both those characters are of another era. They They don't have the kind of zeitgeist of contemporary Vegas. Vegas isn't like that, you know. So they're both, in a sense, deeply romantic. Those characters, in a kind of tragic romantic kind of characters, and so the kind of jazz score and the whole thing, uh, and the, the the kind of neon and the nighttime of it all—it's it, very poetic, you know. I mean, from a cinematic point of view, it's it's fabulous, you know. Um,
0: and of course, you did the jazz score.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Which is incredible. Um, so just adds to your your talents and accolades. And it's also a great snapshot of Vegas in the mid nineties. You know, that's a place that's constantly changing and growing. And um, it's nice that, that uh, document exists uh, you know it also makes me think of uh, showgirls same year same place and we've done in the first season an episode on showgirls of course that's considered camp this is this is uh, high drama and um but they're they're both a great way of remembering vegas at that moment as it was turning and, into this and
1: funnily enough honeymoon in vegas too right
0: right yes but i, I think if i was i had to choose one Yours would be the one I chose to put in the <laughs> in the time capsule, and so the the film is done, and and uh, so you won't, you're not you don't have to speak to or answer to uh, studio executives. You're dealing with with these mm-hmm. uh, these people who funded it. And was was she the eccentric uh, French uh, underwriter happy with what she saw? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are they ever?
1: There were two things, two key things that. Um, Luckily, I, I kind of fought and won. First one was in pre-production. Let's say we're a week before we, we begin shooting. And at that point, you know, suddenly it's a reality that we're gonna shoot, we have a crew, we have a cast. And then you start kind of panicking a little bit about the script, and I was reading the script, I was going, "Um, oh, there's something missing. There's really something missing, which is her voice. And uh, because she only gets to speak when she's talking to Nick, you know, and that's a bit one-sided, and so I kind of went back into pile number one, which was the internal dialogue, which is how she felt about him after she'd met him, but of course, she's not talking to anybody, she's talking to herself in her head, you know, and you can't really, there was no way dramatically that I could incorporate that kind of a device into the film, and I suddenly flashed back, and I remembered Clute and uh relationship with Jane Fonda's character and a therapist sure and I went uh, oh you know what that would give me all those beats you know so I said to Layla the producer I said wow thank God I've got a brain um, I suddenly realized there was something missing and here's what I suggest and she went no no I don't give you I don't give you permission for that uh, I don't think we need it and I went trust me it's not going to cost anything trust me and she went no she's just stubborn. I thought, wow, this is so stupid, because even if it doesn't work, what's, what's the difference, you know? So then I called for a camera and sound test day before we started shooting, and I secretly uh, collared Elizabeth, and I gave her these pages from the, the pile, and I said, read all of this, don't memorize it, just know it. And I said, as part of the camera test, I'm going to be your therapist, and I'm going to ask you some questions. And, wow! Uh, I'm going to be off camera. And, and we're going to test your Vivian Westford outfit uh, or whatever. And uh, it's going to be a sound test. And so that's what we did. So all those therapy scenes were shot secretly in pre-production on the camera test day um, to get so Le- Layla wouldn't. And then she found out and she hit the roof, you know, uh, but it was too late. We'd already shot it. Thank God. Those scenes gave Nick Cage the Oscar because... The audience liked him because of what she said about they were able to love him despite the fact he was a total train wreck it's just like this thing's happening really quickly you know and um i just don't know what's going on i mean just the second i met him and the way i i said my name you know i just said hi my name's sarah and that's not what i do and uh it's just, it's all happening really quickly. I just felt like we were, we've been together for a long time, you know, it just felt so easy and, and I felt like, um, I felt like I was me. I didn't feel like I was trying to be somebody else. So that was obstacle number one with Dear Layla. Then in, post-production we started doing the music and um i rang my friend sting you know i made my first film with sting stormy monday he'd become a friend we're from the same town newcastle and uh we'd kept in touch so i rang him up and i said i've i made a super low budget film and i've got a huge favorite ask of you will you sing three songs for me and he went sure i said just piano and bass and he went sure find a pianist and a bass player and come over next week and we'll record them. So I went to his house. I found a fantastic pianist and bass player. Um, I produced the sessions myself. I chose the songs. you know. He got the sheet music. We did all three songs in about three hours, maybe two takes, three takes maximum for each one. The pianist was incredible. And it was like, wow. And they're so perfect, right? So I put them into the cut and showed it to Leila. And she went, I don't like Sting. <laughs> and I went, I said, oh, by the way, he, he did it for nothing. He didn't wow. charge me any money. Uh, I said, Layla, do you know what that's worth in terms of soundtrack, even if you're not a fan, you know? He said, no, I already played it to my mother. She doesn't like it either. <laughs> so this is funny. So I said, okay, well, obviously we need some songs. I'd become smart in dealing, there's no, no point in head-on because I'd never win a head-on battle with her. So I said, okay, uh, well, let me call you back. So I, kind of went, okay. so I called her back and I said, so, Leila, uh, okay, I hear what you say. Um, here's an alternative. So when I, before I made films, I was a performance artist and I wrote an opera in German. It's really about just about death. Um, and there are three songs in that um, in German. One is called Ich wein um meine Eltern. I weep for my parents. There's another one called Unendlich Schwarzhole, Infinite Black Hole. And I said, it's kind of the more I think about it, the more appropriate this is. And the German somehow is very good too. And um, I said, I would sing those songs. And she said, I'll call you back. So she calls back. She goes, Okay, we'll go with Sting. And I went, Brilliant. I said, I'm so (laughs) insulted. Yeah,
0: you being a director, I think you need a lot of skills, and one of them is, I think, psychology.
1: Well, I think you know, we talked about Ray Stark. I learned my lesson, right? The Stark, the Stark <laughs> lesson, which is, you know, as Mike Medavoy kept saying, like Mike, just keep your mouth shut. It'll, everything will be fine, you know. Um, <laughs>
0: I think I need to learn one of those lessons one of these days. Yeah. Um, but moving along. So uh, so the Stink songs were, uh, uh, who, were the, the, who was the composer of those, those three?
1: Uh, well, the main composer, let's, let's say, is uh, Angel Eyes, which is such a great song, right? Because uh, it begins, the, the film is, have you, ever had, have you ever had the feeling that the world's gone and left you behind? Have you ever had the feeling that the world's gone and left you behind? Have you ever had the feeling that you're that close to losing your mind? You look around each corner, hoping that she's there. You try to play it cool, perhaps, pretend that you don't care. Uh, he just does the, um, the verse, and he doesn't do the song. So that scene where he's collecting all the alcohol in the supermarket. Right. Um, so that and My One and Only Love, which is a really just a most beautiful ballad, one of the most beautiful ballads, I think, of the great American songbook. The very thought of you makes my heart sing like an April breeze.
0: I'm the wings of spring And you appear in all your splendor My one and only love
1: But Angel Eyes was written by Matt Dennis, who was a very famous Las, Las Vegas character, um, who wrote... A lot of hits, you know, and was a really interesting guy. In fact, he wrote to both Sting and myself after the film uh, came out and said he he particularly loved Sting's version because there's so many versions of Angel Eyes, you know.
0: So these were standards or semi-standards that you chose for the to
1: record. There's a cl- there's a classic Frank Sinatra album called Songs for Only the Lonely, which is. Not one of his more famous albums, but it contains "Angel Eyes." It also contains "Lonesome Old Town," the other song that he sings, um, but not uh, "My One and Only Love." That I knew from the John Coltrane Johnny Hartman album um, as as a song, um, and then as a ballad, I knew it as an Art Tatum Ben Webster recording. So it's always been. It was one of my father's favorite tracks, and I kind of put it in there a little bit as a homage to him too
0: amazing i mean let's just skip ahead to the reception i mean you, uh, uh, what were you hearing i mean this is uh, a hugely uh, uh lauded uh film and of course m- you know many oscar nominations and one one for his only one but um when you were first getting audience feedback what's the the feeling
1: well the original feedback was uh zero you know so we finished the film and we started showing it again uh uh Harvey Weinstein, Fox Searchlight. Again, we revisited all those venues, you know. There weren't so many of them, you know, but looking for an American distribution deal. Nobody wanted to touch it. People were kind of saying, it's a very strong film. It's just way too dark for us, you know, sorry, you know. And we were getting pretty desperate. Um, And then a miracle happened, which is uh, John Calley had taken over MGM, come out of retirement, and I was suddenly getting this feedback uh, that he, he liked the movie, that he was coming to London with uh, Frank Mancuso Sr. And um, do you want to have lunch and talk about the film? So this was like this was the most positive response after, I'm telling you, a long period of just nothing. So I, we met someone like the Dorchester, somewhere really nice, and I had lunch and I sat next to I never met John before, immediately liked him. And it became clear immediately that he was a huge jazz fan. He, in fact, had been a jazz bass player when he in his youth. He'd also been really good friends with Charlie Parker's widow, Chan Parker. And at a certain point, and this is one of those moments in one's history that you could never you could never write this stuff. We were talking about jazz and getting very and so I know a lot about jazz from my dad. And uh we started talking about the new, the new York scene and musicians, key musicians. And I said to him, did you ever come across a jazz drummer called Dave Tuff? And John Kelly teared up and he said he was my godfather, you know. Now Dave Tuff is that kind of iconic drummer amongst drummers. Like Charlie Watts passed away recently and I remember talking to Charlie Watts. He was a huge Dave Tuff fan. He was a Dixieland jazz white drummer but a huge influence on modern jazz. His technique was totally revolutionary, and it turned out that Cali, yeah, had this had this connection with Dave Tuff. And I remember at certain point Frank Mancuso Sr. saying, uh, "Well, gentlemen, are we are we finished? Would you like coffee? We'd just been talking for like two hours about jazz," <laughs> and and then sort of in parting, John Kelly said, "Oh, we're going to make this movie, by the way. We're going to distribute this," and MGM picked it up, and through Cali, they started this very aggressive campaign of screenings. And the reviews were on the fence. And then um, one review came out. Um, the British uh, film critic was just Thompson. Um, David Tom- Thompson. And he wrote a two-page review. And that, it was the tipping point. Every on-the-fence critic then jumped over into the positive, And suddenly it was like everybody was t- Suddenly everybody was talking about it
0: that's an amazing thing and and i think about that a lot of time uh, about how criticism works in kind of herd mentality yeah Um, and it's not the most reassuring you know if someone's in a bad mood one day that might you know change everything just walking out of a a festival screening and and they meet in the lobby and come to their group Uh, think uh, opinion but um in this case it sounds like it worked in the film's favor and and very deservingly so
1: and then almost overnight almost overnight everything changed and it's like i remember saying it's like being in the the a horse race at the 330 at sort of new market uh and apparently you're in this race you know uh but you never you didn't by a racehorse, and you never intended to be in a race, you know. I, I always thought the best that could happen to Leaving Las Vegas was a, as like a little festival, you know, moment and some, and some good responses. I never saw it as like a hit movie. Um, and then suddenly it was like everybody was talking about it. And then there's this key moment where the guy in Vegas who always predicts who's going to get the Oscars. Uh, I remember the Hollywood Reporter one guy saying he's... Chosen this film, Leaving Las Vegas, says that's going to do well. I'm, what you know, and then you know, I went on the circuit, started promoting the film, and it was it was crazy. Absolutely, and you crazy.
0: were you were nominated for screenplay and director, mm-hmm. and um, Elizabeth was nominated, and Nick was nominated, right?
1: Yeah, so it got four four noms, and then a bunch. Obviously, it, it won loads of critics awards, and it right. Uh, I think I won you Know the indie award, um, and uh, yeah, whatever. Golden Globes, I uh, Globes, I think. Uh, I think Elizabeth won, I can't remember anymore. I mean, we were up against Sean Penn for you know, Dead Man Walking, and Mel Gibson won, I believe, the director f- f- award, the Oscar for um, Braveheart, right? That year, I think, um crazy
0: i i re nick's speech and uh it's very touching he's he's obviously you know for someone who's always in character he he lets his guard down and you can see just how delighted he is and he he says what i was thinking while watching it is that this m- movie married uh, art and commerce um i mean i think it made something like 50 million dollars at the box office uh mm-hmm. had to be happy for your difficult French uh, underwriter and uh, and uh, and for MGM, and he says your name, and the audience applauds very warmly. And I'm just wondering what that meant for you.
1: Three and a half million dollar budget, some 16 millimeter uh, film stock thrown in, and I'm holding one of these. I have got to thank the members of the Academy for this. And, and for helping me blur the line between art and commerce with this award. I know it's not hip to say it, but I just love acting, and I hope that, uh, I hope that there will be more encouragement for uh, alternative movies where we can experiment and fast-forward into the future of acting. Let me thank the awesome, multi-talented Mike Figgis. My incredible, my incredible amazing co-star, Elizabeth Shue. I am I am going to share this award with both of you.
0: I mean, obviously, this this came from a a place of pure artistic uh, uh, impulse, and that uh, you weren't expecting it to be seen.
1: I, I saw the whole thing as being like a kind of wonderful opportunity to uh, get temporary membership to a club and observe, like how that how the grown ups and the you know the the Spielbergs and everybody how they all. What that club was like, you know, and you know the membership sort of petered out after about eighteen months, I think, because I didn't follow up, I didn't pay my dues, basically. But um, you know, I could have gone on from there and 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 built a proper Hollywood career. But I, you know, I'd always thought of this as like a way out back into more into the indie stuff that I was more interested in anyway. Um, so I was fascinated. I mean, Oscar night was to me, just totally fascinating, you know, like just watching how they structured the, the ceremony, um, the speed with which they hurtled people off the stage in between the ad breaks. And, you know, uh, there was a moment when Christopher Reeve came on in a wheelchair, you know, and everybody was like standing and applauding, and then they went to an ad break, and I just heard someone get him off the stage now. Like, oh no! Four like huge guys like manhandled his wheelchair off because they was. Oh like... my! And in the background there was a video of 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 Cindy Crawford licking the designer stubble of some guy's face, and I don't even know what the what the product was. I just like the experimental in me was like going, this is <laughs> beyond bizarre, you know. Uh, i loved it you know
0: and what about this idea that you are entering this rarefied uh club you know with your nomination and you know were other directors coming up to you and saying welcome you're one of us now and
1: i mean yeah i mean i've always found funny enough hollywood very welcoming in terms of like within the directors club you know there's certain the directors that i respect are, were always pretty respectful and nice to me um what was bizarre, like one day I'm back in London and my agent rings up and said, Stanley Kubrick wants to talk to you. Is it okay to give him your phone number? I was tempted to say no. I said, are you serious? And they went, yeah, he's read your, he's seen the film and he wants to talk to you. So I said, sure. 20 minutes later, my phone rings and it, it's Stanley Kubrick. And he said, you know, thank you for your time. Um, I saw your film Great work, blah, blah, blah. Can I ask you some, literally some practical questions, how you did it? And we proceeded to have, he interviewed me and said, about 16 millimeter. Uh, and he said he was intrigued. Probably he would never shoot anything on 16, but he just, he said, how long was your shoot? And I said, three weeks. <laughs> I could just hear him laughing. And I was just like, it's <laughs> coffee break for him, isn't it? For
0: him, that's one take. Yeah. Like one shot is three um, weeks.
1: You know, and yeah, Spielberg, you know, sent me a lovely letter and said, come and have lunch and let's talk about doing a project together. I mean, all that stuff happened, you know, um, came to nothing, but there was that, there was that, it was nice, you know, it was not real. I had, I knew that this was like, okay, the fun will stop and you have to go, go back to some sense of reality again, you know.
0: But in a sense, what is real is, is the, is The fact that you made a a masterpiece and that it will stand the the test of time it's on amazon now amazon prime so uh anyone with amazon prime can watch it it's it's a pretty nice print i thought i encourage everyone to either see it again or see it for the first time if you've never seen it leaving las vegas one of the great love story tragic dramas of the of modern times. so thank you so much this was really fabulous
1: it was a great pleasure talking to you and um Good luck with everything, okay?
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, I really love that film, and now I have just a whole new layer of appreciation for it. So thank you, Mike Figus, for joining us this week. If you want to watch Leaving Las Vegas, it's available to stream on Amazon Prime. Next week, we're going to have Susan Seidelman, the director of the 1985 hit Desperately Seeking Susan that, of course, launched Madonna's career. That one's on Paramount Plus to stream for free if you subscribe. So by all means, watch it, and we'll see you here next week. Until then, I'll see you in Hollywood.